Umpire fans and welcome to the Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. This is a special episode where we continue the interview with 1988 Olympian, 1990 International Umpire of the Year, and a Canadian umpire icon, Jim Cressman. On this part of the episode, we talk about the 1988 Olympics, being named International Umpire of the Year, and how Tino Martinez's grandfather gave him some cigars. So sit back, relax, get ready. It's coming. Hello, baseball and umpire fans, and welcome back to another episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Well, it's the start of the second half of the interview that I had with Jim Cressman, 1990 International Umpire of the Year, 1991 Amateur Canadian Official of the Year, and an umpire who traveled to the Olympic Games in 1988. Now, like as mentioned before, the interview went a little bit long, that's okay, but the decision was made that we would break the interview up into two separate episodes so that you could come back, get refreshed, and enjoy it, because we're just about to get into his 1988 Olympic travels to Seoul, South Korea. Now, if you haven't had the opportunity, I recommend that you go back to the first half of the interview and get the preamble into his international experiences and some of the stories about John McSherry, Steve Palermo, his minor league experiences, and some of his other international experiences outside of the 1988 Olympics. So to give you a taste of what you're missing, or just to refresh some of our general listeners, here's an excerpt from the first part of the interview with Jim Cressman. He said, well, why don't you go home and find something else to do for the summer? And he uh, said, uh, I see you're not playing anymore because he was umpiring that game. And I said, no. He said, well, would you like to umpire? And I went, oh, okay, fine. Interesting story about how I ended up at umpire school. I had never, ever thought about being a professional umpire. It never crossed my mind. You know, at the end of six weeks, I was one of 27 who ended up getting a job. To that end, I give full credit to John McSherry, the, the late National League umpire. He goes to the door, he opens up the door, he turns around just as he closes the door. He says, great line though. But anyway, we get to our car that night, my partner's car, and I'm not sure if it had anything to do with that incident. I got a feeling it might. And there was a bullet hole in the driver's door. The Taiwanese and the Cuban umpire would be in the back seat. The Taiwanese would be speaking Chinese to the Cuban. The Cuban would be speaking Spanish to the... I'm just pulling up to the bridge to go across. And I go, whoa, and I do a quick U-turn. We got a Cuban in the car for him to get into the United States to begin with. Well, when you go by him, just say, I hear you're the big banana. <laughs> it's really cool that I got to see Steve Palermo work his first American League game. Uh, it was in Toronto. He was on third base. Did an interview with Steve on him working his first game in the, in the Major League. Well, as you can probably tell, we've had a lot of fun in that first half of the interview. And guess what? That's just going to continue rolling right into the second half here. But if you do want to hear about the infamous Big Banana story from a firsthand account, or you want to hear about Jim's experience with Steve Palermo and getting the opportunity to interview him after his first Major League game, tune into the first half of the episode with Jim Cressman. Okay, for anyone that did listen to the first episode and you're interested in reading that article about Steve Palermo, I've done some groundwork. And with the help of a Mark Richardson from the London Public Libraries and their archive section, he was able to track down the article and has sent me a copy. Now I want to share it with you. So the only place that I can share it is on the Leading Edge Umpire Stories Facebook page. So go over to our Facebook page, Leading Edge Umpire Stories, search for it, however you find it. 
you know, like it, share it, and all that fun stuff. But to be able to read that article from April 9th, 1977, between Jim Cressman and Steve Palermo about Steve's first game in Major League Baseball at Exhibition Stadium in Toronto between the Toronto Blue Jays and the Chicago White Sox. Okay, I get it. Enough of this pre-intro stuff. You really want to just finish hearing the episode and the interview with Jim Cressman. So I'm not going to hold you up any longer. But just to set the setting proper, we have just finished talking about some of his international experience and we're just about to get into the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. So what you're going to do is you're going to pick up right at the beginning of the discussion between Jim Cressman and myself on his trip to the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. Please enjoy. So Jim, let's work up to the pinnacle of it, okay? Now, we're kind of going to go back in time here. You go to the World University Games in 93. But the big one is the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. What was it like to represent Canada really for the first time as it was a demonstration sport at that time? Four years prior to that, Dave McManus from New Brunswick had gone to L.A. uh, when they had baseball. And then uh, Seoul, again, they were having it as a demonstration sport. But as an umpire, you still you couldn't look at it as a demonstration sport because those countries were spending lots of money. Well, the Olympics were spending money. Uh, the national sport host was spending all that money. The countries were spending all the money to be there, uh, that sort of thing. And for the players, they were still getting medals. They were still, it was still, they got the real medals and all that. And it's, it's and almost like it was an audition to get into it, right? Like this, it meant more then than it did yeah, because we had, we, and I say as umpires too, we had to put on a good show. No question. Because the IOC at that time was still, it was called, because it was demonstration, it was demonstrating that that was a legitimate sport that should be on a full level as a recognized Olympic sport. So it, the onus was on the players and the umpires and everybody involved to put on a good show. And they did in LA, and I think we, we did that in, uh, in Seoul. And when you're on that field anyway, you know, as an umpire, oh, this is this is just exhibition or just demonstration or whatever. It still means means everything. I still had to. There was times I still had to kind of pinch myself. That uh, and I know that sounds so cliche, but I really did. Uh, hmm. That I'm at I'm at the Olympics. Like wow, like the world, the world is watching. Uh, yeah, this going on uh, right now. And pinch yourself because you're in an exclusive club. There's only what eight Canadians you say Dave McManus, then we go Jim Cressman, then we get Ozzy Chevaria, who's been mentioned on the show a few times, Glenn Johnston, uh, then we're going Robert Bellrose, uh, Don Gilbert, and then Ron Shuchuk and Brian Hodgson in 2008, and then they actually t- remove baseball from the Olympics, and yeah. we're going back here, it was supposed to be this year in 2020, and Trevor Grieve got the nod. Yeah, and Chris Wilhelm from Ontario as well was going to be a replay official, which was pretty cool. Yes. It's too bad. They had the Olympics kind of got into that austerity thing where they said, we got to start chopping some sports. So they looked at the number of participants worldwide, just not worldwide, but the number of countries that were coming to the Olympics, that sort of thing. And competing. And that's why they, but they didn't realize that baseball is a huge sport around the world. There's countries where they're playing baseball that's not even not even organized, like right. in Africa and places like that. Yes, you go you go there. You go on the go out on the streets in uh, in the Middle East and places like that, and they're playing baseball, some form of baseball. Right. But uh, yeah, it's 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 too bad. But I do think I think at some point you'll see baseball get back as a as a full sport in the Olympics. I think so as well, and I, we're working yeah. our way up there. And the WBSC has done a great effort to try to really bring that and showcase it on the world stage once again. 
it is kind of a neat club to be uh, to be a member of. But, but that's why I hope others get that same opportunity that deserve to go. I never, I never even expected it. It really did come out of left field for uh, for me to go to go to Seoul. I was actually expecting. I had heard through the grapevine. Dick Willis was the supervisor of umpires at the time uh, for Canada at Baseball Ontario and uh, Baseball Canada. I had kind of heard through the grapevine I was going to the World Youth in Australia. So I was getting all pumped about going to Australia. And I still remember I was working, I was at the London Free Press. It would have been March of 88, I think it was. And I get a call and I recognized Dick's voice. He had a real deep baritone voice. Gentlemen, I said, Dick, how are you? So I'm fine. He says, I've got some really good news for you. Are you sitting down? I went, yeah. And then he says, you're going to the Olympics in Seoul. And I just kind of sat there. And he said, Jim? Jim? And I said, Dick, did you say Seoul? And he says, yeah. And I said, oh. and I kind of laughed. He said, why are you laughing? I said, well, I kind of heard through the grapevine I was going to uh, Australia. And I thought, I, I thought I heard you wrong. And he says, no, you're going to Seoul. And I was like, oh, my God. And then it just, it just hit me. It was like, wow. I, I don't want to say, uh, I know it's a family show, so I don't want to. I'm sure umpire heard the word. But uh, it, it was like. Again, as I say, it totally, uh, totally came out of uh, came out of left field. Okay, Jim, can you share with us how one prepares going into the Olympics? You just keep doing what you're doing. That summer, I was because the Olympics weren't until I think it was October, because the temperature over there in the summertime is just stifling, right. really, really bad. So that's why the Olympics were held in. I'm pretty sure it was October. So I just worked worked my usual games uh, back here uh, doing. Uh, the amateur ball, I was doing uh, the kids' ball, I was doing the intercounty, that's that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, I was getting excited as as it, as it was approaching. Uh, had to fill out a lot of forms and stuff like that to get the visa. It really wasn't until I was uh, packing all my uh, stuff and getting ready to head for the airport that I realized that uh, wow, this is because at that by then I went over. I think we got there three days, four days prior to the opening ceremonies. But by then, of course, everything on television was about the upcoming Olympics. It was the road to the Olympics, all that sort of stuff. And I, and, that, and as I say, that's when it really was hitting me that tomorrow or whenever it was, or yesterday, yep. I'm going to be there because of the time. Yep. The time it's time here. Difference. But, uh, yeah. Like I, I am going to actually be there in, in that situation. It's still, uh, I still think back on it and it's, it's a, it's a bit of a blur. I was there the whole time. I ended up paying extra money. You could do that to stay. Because I'd seen the opening ceremonies. I wanted to be there for the closing. I wanted to do yeah. the whole thing. Baseball was the first week. So uh, the, the, the Dutch umpire, he and I had both stayed. So we hung out. We got to know each other. We actually ended up doing a, a world in, uh, in Edmonton a few years, uh, few years later. Uh, it was kind of neat to stay for the entire event. Was that the opening? Was that the closing? But I got to go to the uh, all the track and field and the basketball, the weightlifting, the swimming. Again, it was like the university games, but on a huge, much huger uh, level. Going and see the, uh, seeing the other uh, seeing the other athletes, and where we were staying, uh, the other officials were all staying there too. So I got to meet officials from around the world and talk to them about their uh, about their sports. It's, you don't realize the the magnitude of it until you're actually swallowed up by it. A couple of cool stories. Yeah, the day that Ben Johnson was running, we had a game, 2 o'clock Korea time. We're in the stadium. We, we always got there about an hour, hour and a half before the, uh, the game. I'll quickly back up and tell one okay. other story. We had a van that took us to the ballpark each day. So we get on the van, 
and these two young guys in suits, one guy would get on the van first, come back and say, okay, you can come on. So we got on and we would, American and I were always sitting near the, uh, near the back of the van. And so he comes back as we're ready to go. And there's another guy in a suit, young guy in the van at the front. And there's a motorcycle leading us. We started talking to the guy and uh, we said, like, are you security? And he said, yes. And he showed us this little pen. They, they were Korean, Korean right. army. That's what they were. They're extreme forces, uh, like the SWAT or whatever. Yeah. And he had a little wee pin. And he said, if you're ever in trouble and you see anybody wearing this pin, just go to them. Because they spoke perfect English and that. And we're kind of looking at him and said, I don't see like a gun under your jacket. He says, well, we don't, if somebody gets on here, we don't want to be shooting a gun, but we use these. And he put his hands up like karate. <laughs> That's what it's that was kind of a cool story, but anyway. Jim gets so, escorted to ball fields to and from with mob bosses, and now he's over in Korea yeah. with the SWAT force. I just don't know what side of the game you're know, taking I, here, Jim. I, I, I kind of like the mob bosses. Yeah. <laughs> <Kind of> like, <laughs> and he's esca- and he's uh, smuggling Cubans back into America, right? <laughs> like, oh, God. If they, thank God I'm out of Baseball Canada because I'd be turf now. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you know, the worst part is I start telling war stories. I don't know where I was going, so I was talking about couple interesting stories about now you're heading Olympic, back you're heading back to watch ben johnson oh the ben johnson story thank you <laughs> anyway so i want to go and see up because the, the, the track the big track soccer stadium was just across this big promenade from the baseball stadium and so the race was going off like at 10 after one quarter after one 20 i think it was 20 after one sorry i remember that 20 after one so i said to them i said we got because american wanted to go too because you know he was oh, going to yeah. be cheering yeah. for carl lewis We'll say, we'll just go up into the into one of the vomitories, stand there, watch it, then get back. And the, the security people said, no, you'll never get back. As soon as that race is over, everybody's going to leave the stadium and you will get swamped and you'll never get back to the stadium. And we said, well, geez, we really want to see this race. So the security says to us, come with us, but you have to swear not to say anything. Well, okay, we don't know why. So they lead us to an elevator. We go down an elevator. We get out of the elevator. We walk into this room. It's got to be the length of half a football field. And there's all these people in there and there's all these TV monitors. It was the total, it was the complete command center for the security of the Olympics. Every venue, every street corner, everything was in there. And the guy says, you can't tell anybody where this is. Okay. He said, we promised. So we got to watch the race on, on those, uh, on those uh, screens. And of course that was great that Ben Johnson, uh, Ben Johnson won. Of course, then a couple of days later, we all know what, what happened. But another quick Olympic story. I'm working uh, U.S. and Puerto Rico. And I got the plate, and NBC was just taping. They weren't showing the games live, again, because of the time difference, Tape but delay. also because it was a demonstration. But they still wanted to show some of the baseball. So they mic'd me up before the game. Oh, nice. So, so anyway, I always, had, I always had this habit. And because, of course, Star Spangled Banner, uh, I from the minor leagues, I would always sing it. Well, force a habit, I'm standing there at home plate in Seoul. Star Spangled Banner is being played before the game, and I'm singing. <laughs> and it was like, I thought, oh, no. But anyway, during the game, I, I swore. I went, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Or no, I think I swore. And I went, oh, shit. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> I spoke into the microphone on my shirt. So anyway, after the, after the game, the guy comes in to take the microphone off me. He says, oh, yeah, by the, guy, by the way, the guys in the truck told me to tell you, don't ever quit your day job for a singing job. You're not going to make it. <laughs> he says, we're going to leave that in, they said. Uh-huh. I said no. yeah. <laughs> but 
one other quick story about the Olympics. And again, it's not so much the games. One day I was working at right field foul line because we use six umpires. So it's my turn to do a foul line. So I'm out on the right field foul line and there's a whole bunch of uh, U.S. servicemen sitting down there, probably a couple hundred of them. Well, I didn't realize uh, about an hour or so to the south was a big U.S. base. So they brought them all up by bus to uh, see the game that day. Makes sense. Anyway, the wall is in that stadium, which they still use for professional baseball, they've just added another tier. I think back then it sat about 20,000. But the wall kind of worked its way in toward the foul line. So anything that was hit along the wall would basically come right to where I was. So I would always pick it up, and then I would throw it over to the, uh, the ball boy. Well, at one point when one came over there, the U.S. service guys had all moved down to the wall. And so I picked it up, and the one service guy yells, hey, hey um, um, Blue, blue, how about, a, how about a ball? I said, I can't. I said, there's a guy sitting back behind home plate. There was a glass box back there. Okay. And Tom Ravisher, who was the supervisor for, for international baseball from, uh, from the States, he was sitting there. And I said, if, if I give you a baseball, that guy is going to send me on the first plane back to Canada. And the one guy says, you know what? He said, I'd even take a ball autographed by an umpire. I said, you go get a pen and it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> The end of the inning, he comes down, he's got a Sharpie. I go over with the ball, I take the Sharpie, and I sign it, I give it to him. So after the game, Rav comes in uh, into the umpire's room, and he's talking to us, and he, and he starts to leave. Oh, yeah, Cressman, by the way, what are you doing giving away baseballs? I said, but, but Rav, he says, no, no, but about it, Cressman. And I said, well, I gave it to a U.S. serviceman, and I said if, if he found a pen, I'd, or he said he'd even take an autographed ball from an umpire. And, and he says, oh, man, he says, that's the greatest thing you could have ever done today. <laughs> yeah. But those are the things, until you get talking like this, I forget about all that stuff. But that's the stuff. Those are the memories. That's, oh, that's yes. where you get memories from working things, uh, things like that. There are still some others that I know you want to ask me about. So shoot. Growing up, I look back at the rosters in 88. There were some big names on that U.S. team. Um, we're looking at Ed Sprague, won the World Series with the Jays, Tino Martinez, Mickey Morandini, Charles Nagy, Robin Ventura. played in the Eastern League uh, when, I, when I was covering the Eastern League for the London Free Press. Go ahead. And so did Tino. But anyway, sorry to cut you off there. No, no, that's fantastic. That's okay. That's okay. And Team Canada, I come from New Brunswick initially. They had Matt Stairs, Real Cormier. Rob Butler, who also won the World Series with the Jays back with Sprague in 93. Now, one player in particular I do want to ask, maybe before we go, before we ask about that player, Jim, can you tell us what your Sunday assignment was per se at that tournament? The Sunday, I think that was the goal. That was the championship day. Okay, yes, champ, let's, try, let's call it championship day. What you I work on? I was working first base in the gold medal game. Yeah. And who were the two, um, who were the two teams playing? I was going to say the plate umpire was from Puerto Rico and oh man, his name just slipped my mind. I'm old. He was a veteran and I knew he was going to get the plate and that was fun. It was the U.S. against Japan. Cuba wasn't there because Cuba and Russia had boycotted the Olympics that year because it was in Seoul because uh, North Korea didn't like South Korea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the Cubans weren't there, but it was still some great baseball. Yeah. So I'm on first base, U.S. versus Japan. You're probably going to ask me who the pitcher was for the United States. So basically the lead in, in all fairness, people listening, a childhood idol of mine, never met the individual, but just when you look at baseball and being the uniqueness of it, Jim Abbott is the starting pitcher for the States. For those that don't know Jim Abbott, Jim Abbott was born without 
the use of his right hand. It was, in proper terms, a stub. He was a child yeah. of thalidomide, a drug that was used by mothers for an anti-nausea medication drug that was really sold to them as the wonder drug. And we later found out there was some tetragenic effects to it. But Jim Abbott, you get to work a game with an individual who I just admired for that perseverance. What was it like being on the field with a guy who's at the, I'm not going to call it the peak of his career because he throws a no hitter later in major league baseball. But at that, at that moment in looking at a guy like that, who is, you, you just know visually has persevered to get to this moment, like everyone else, but just at a different level. I'm going to stop talking and let you talk because I'll go on all day. Well, we, we didn't know that he was going to make it to oh, the no. major leagues. Like, nope. That was like, like just the fact that he did was like, wow. But at that point, there was talk that, yeah, he might have a shot. But a lot of people were going, no, there's no way he could ever do that with just the one hand because he's got to take the glove off the one hand to throw the ball. How is he going to catch if there's a line? All that sort of stuff. Anyway, all the naysayers. But at the uh, but at the Olympics in that gold medal game, man, he wow, he he showed right then and there that he could uh, he could do it because the Japanese pretty good ball club, oh yeah, pretty good ball. But he he but uh, my best story out of Jim Abbott pitching was, and I think it was about the third or fourth inning. He comes set, and of course with him being a lefty, he's facing me over at first base, and I look and I go, he didn't he doesn't have the ball in the glove. I start up going, that's a, I go, whoa, shit. And I go back down. I was going to call a Bach off. And then, oh, my God, I'm so glad I didn't. And Tino Martinez was the U.S. first baseman. And he goes, what? And I said, never, nothing, nothing. <laughs> I guess that's why they tell you to pause, read, and react, right? Yeah, exactly. And I did. That's the, that was probably a lesson learned at the Olympics. Pause, read, react. But, oh, I know. That would have been oh that that would have been embarrassing if I called a called a Bach uh, called a Bach of that one. But a quick Tino Martinez story too. Tino's father was there, and one of the games there was always two games a day. They were always they played day games because that's they figured they could get the crowds in the daytime where the big stuff was going on at night at the Olympics. They weren't going to get the crowds, so anyway they played at ten and two. So one day I had the ten o'clock game, so I stayed for the two o'clock game, and I sat with. Tom Ravishier in that uh, glass in box, right at the ground level behind the plate. Well, Tino's father was there. He was up from uh, Miami. And so I got to know him and his dad ran, the grandfather had a cigar factory. The, the father had, or the grandfather had come from Cuba, had a cigar factory in, in uh, Tampa. And so, uh, yeah, I said Miami, but it was in Tampa. Uh, so anyway, so I got to know uh, Tino's father. So, uh, and I got to know Tino because I'd done the, done a few U.S. games and that sort of thing too. So during the, uh, during the seventh inning of the gold medal game, I casually kind of just walked over to Tino and I said, because I knew he was going to be playing with the uh, Seattle Mariners, and I said, the next time I see you, I want to be bugging you for tickets at Tiger Stadium because I'm only two hours from Detroit. He says, you got a deal. Get a hold of me and you'll have tickets. So okay, fine. Well, a year later, I walk up to Tino Martinez in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, Seattle Mariners AA affiliate in the Eastern League because at that point I'm covering the London Tigers who are now in the Eastern League 1989 a year after the Olympics and I never knew I was going to be covering the London Tigers I went on the road I covered them for two years I was on the road with them and the whole bit but so I walk up to Tino I walk up to Tino at the batting cage in Williamsport and I said uh, can I have 10 minutes of your time for an interview and he looks at me and he says I know you from somewhere 
And I just kind of stood there and I said, well, rack your brain. And he goes, I can't. He says, I know I know you. And I said, you might recognize me if I'm wearing gray pants and blue shirt. He goes, the Canadian umpire. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we had a great, we had a great chat. I did a story on him. The next, uh, when the uh, Williamsport Bills, that's what they're called, came up to London on a road trip, Tino brought me a box of cigars from oh. his dad's well, grandfather's cigar factory in Tampa. <laughs> so that was a, that was kind of a cool uh, sidebar to the, uh, all because of the Olympics. And let's go back further, all because of baseball. It is, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I've traveled the world, like Italy. I, was, I spent two and a half weeks in Italy at the Worlds. I learned how to cook Italian food properly. Like that was a that was a tremendous. We could go on and on and on with with stories about Seoul. One of the things about Seoul was every morning, I made sure I ate kimchi, and that's like cabbage boiled in uh, yes. garlic and stuff. There's various levels. I always got the strongest. It was awful until I learned to like it, because whenever I get on the subway, oh my God, if you hadn't been eating, well, it's safe. If you're going on a date, one of you is eating garlic. The other one better eat the garlic. Well, if you were going to survive on the subway in Seoul, you better have eaten kimchi that morning. Oh my goodness. But uh, learned all these trips. I've learned about food. I learned about uh, Korean food. I learned uh, because I went to the Olympics, I walked on the Great Wall. I took a 10 day trip to uh, Hong Kong and I'm, oh, I just cry my eye. I cry my heart out now for what's going on in Hong Kong because when I was there, it was free and everything. And I just, it's just too bad what they're, what they're doing, just stifling that tremendous city. But I went to Hong Kong after Seoul. And then I went up into uh, China on a, on a, it was a 10 day trip. I walked in Tiananmen Square a few months before the tanks rolled into Tiananmen Square. I walked on the Great Wall. I actually had tears in my eyes realizing, my God, like the astronauts show this. You can see that from, from outer space. And, uh, right. So again, and I've been to Italy for the worlds. I still remember we're the first night we're in this city called Fiorenza. I didn't know what that meant. I found out later it was Florence, but I'd been <laughs> up for over 24 hours with the flight over, get to the Rome airport, waiting for other umpires. They're delayed, they're delayed, they're delayed. So by the time I go to bed, or by the time I hit bed that night, I think I'd been up for 36 straight hours. But before we went to bed, the Italian umpires just had to take us into the piazza and Firenze for a few drinks. And uh, so I'm looking at this naked statue and I'm thinking, oh, well, this is nice, whatever. It's a young guy and I have no clue what it is. Next day, I'm walking down a street and there's a postcard stand and I start looking at postcards and I go, oh, that's what I saw last night. And I pick it up, turn it over. It was David. <laughs> like, oh, oh boy. <laughs> But again, and I've been in the Coliseum where the Lions ate the Christians. And again, it's it's baseball. It's uh, it's incredible. And I tell umpires, I when I do, again, I just thought of this. I was doing a clinic out in Dorchester where Chris Robinson is from, who caught for the national uh, team for a number of years. And one, he was on the Pan Am, uh, Pan Am, our first Pan Am goal. And I say to the umpires, I said, well, you've all heard of Chris Robinson. I said, Chris has been international. He's been to the Worlds. He's been to the Pan Ams, this sort of stuff. But I, but I said, umpires can do the same thing. And I said, I'm not going to stand here. I'm not bragging about what I've done, but I just want to show you what you can do if you want to pursue the umpire. And I'm speaking for all the other umpires in Canada, who the other, the other seven who've gone to the Olympics, the others who've gone to the Worlds, the others who've gone just done nationals, that sort of thing. And I tell these young umpires, this is all there for you if you just want to put your mind to it and develop and grow and grow as an umpire and, and put everything you've got into it, this can all be waiting for you well, at the end of the rainbow, I guess, if you want to say it that way. And that's fair. I know the game's given me a lot. I'm still young. I still make mistakes every day. 
But, oh, hey, but, I do too. You know what? You don't you don't grow if you don't make mistakes. You might kick a play. You kick a play and you go, why did I kick it? Oh, bad angle. Or my timing was quick. Well, you just don't make that mistake the next game. Right. Well, yeah, I have. So yeah. <laughs> I'm old. I feel, some days I feel it. Some days I don't. That's all a personal assessment. I'm not going to sit here and call yeah, you old. I'm going to sit here and call you experienced and well-versed. Oh, I like that. There we go. That's much better. So you come home from the Olympics in 88, 1990, you're named the International Baseball Federation Umpire of the Year. What did it feel like to get that award? Well, I was actually umpiring at the seniors. The Worlds were in uh, Edmonton that year. And I was told next day that I needed to be at the ballpark for because I was supposed to be making a presentation. And so I thought I was making a presentation to another umpire. When we went to internationals, we always took a sport coat and a nice pair of pants and a tie right. with us. We had the opening dinner and all that sort of stuff. We always, yes. you know what, we wanted classy, so we dressed up. And so I wore my, I wore the blazer that I had and the pants and the tie and everything. I went to the ballpark and we go out onto the field and then the announcer starts making this uh, announcement or we draw your attention to uh, the home plate umpire for a special uh, presentation. Well, then Baseball Canada, I think it was Cass, uh, Cass Pilak was with Baseball Canada at the time. And so he started talking about this umpire and he starts giving the resume and then all of a sudden I realize, God, he's talking about me. <laughs> and uh, there was a gentleman there with the International Baseball Federation, was there too, from uh, from Belgium. He had something under a, a, a small piece of cloth or whatever. And then they got to the point where they said, and we want to award Jim Cressman of Canada with the International Baseball Empire of the Year Award. It was like, whoa. Again, it was like totally unexpected, appreciated. But again, it's... you. Know, like you just you, you get it and you just you kind of park it you don't you don't go around oh yeah by the way yeah guess what that's that sort of thing uh i guess that's again that's the officials all officials are like that we it's nice to be noticed but we don't really want to be noticed all that much we want to be able to just kind of leave the ballpark and uh, go do our thing but uh yeah that was a that was a that, that was a great a great honor and i was in italy to see uh, another umpire uh, a guy from the u.s uh i think it was gus rodriguez got it that year and gus is now the, the supervisor, supervisor for, uh, for national baseball for baseball softball yeah i can never world baseball softball confederation yeah oh, yeah but he got it he got it that year and that, that was cool to see uh to be there to to see him presented with that uh, on the show. It's like, you know what? It's nice to see umpires recognized. Like, let, let's not kid ourselves about that. It's nice when we do get recognized. Quick story about getting recognized back to the World Youth in Brandon, Manitoba one year. Korea had won the gold. I did the plate on the gold medal game, and uh, they beat the U.S. And Mike Schmidt's kid was playing for uh, for the U.S. There's a they're name dropping. Anyway, I, I am old, eh? I am old. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so we're doing the umpires. We're all going on in the closing ceremony, being paraded onto the field, and we're looking for Mr. Kim from Korea. Everybody's going, "Where's Mr. Kim? Where's Mr. Kim?" All of a sudden, somebody notices him. There, he's on the podium with the Korea team, getting a gold medal <laughs> put around his neck. <laughs> Talk about getting recognized. <laughs> just just <laughs> fall in line. I'm sure the people presenting the medals just thought he was part of the team. No question. There's Mr. Kim. That's Mr. Kim. There's a Mexican. There was an umpire from uh, Bernie from, oh, God, Bernie, Bernie from Oshawa. He was a letter carrier. And he brought some of his Canada Post shirts to Brandon. There's a Mexican umpire to this day still umpiring baseball. Because apparently he would show up at internationals. He'd have this Canada Post shirt as an umpire shirt. <laughs> <laughs> All about branding, getting that brand out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, you don't want to talk too much about yourself or uh, or your accolades, but come on. The next year, 91, you're named the amateur, Air Canada Amateur um, Official of the Year here in Canada. What's it like now getting recognized again from your country? Again, I had no clue that out of left field. 
I found out later that Baseball Canada, every year, I don't even think they have that award anymore, but uh, every year Air Canada sponsored this, the right. amateur sports official of, of the year in the country. And Baseball Canada put my uh, name in, or Dick Willis or Don Gilbert, or somebody had, I, I can't remember who it was. But it was nice, got to fly up to Ottawa for the presentation, and yeah, but the, the best thing about it was you got two tickets to anywhere that uh, Air Canada flew. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so, but I waited too long. I was going to go to the French Riviera. I thought, <laughs> why not go on a trip yeah. like that? Where Canada stopped flying over there. So I called after I found that out. I thought, oh man. So I, I had a buddy and we'd done a little bit of traveling. We'd gone to Cuba together and stuff like that. And uh, so I said, you know, I'm just going to call. I'm going to find out the farthest they fly. Do you want to go? And he said, okay. And so I called up and I, and I said to the girl, I said, I have this voucher for two tickets. Anywhere you guys fly, where's the farthest you fly? She said, well, let me look that up. She says, Trinidad and Tobago. I said, good. Book me two tickets. So we went to Trinidad and Tobago and had a great, great time. I would have never, ever gone to Trinidad in uh, Wildest Dreams. We were there just before the big carnival down there. So we were kind of getting the pre-carnival atmosphere. But again, uh, I don't know. Oh, boy. You're, I'm glad this is only audio, not video, because I am blushing right now. He is. I will attest to that. Yeah. He's blushing. Let's move on to 10 questions, okay? Essentially, 10 questions okay. on this show is, I ask you a question, might be baseball related, might not be anything we've talked about. If I like your answer... And if I disagree with it, quite simple, okay? Let's just get a conversation starter going, okay? Now, one thing you haven't mentioned here today, but you enjoy theater and musicals over the years. I know you've done a lot of touring and that stuff. What's your favorite musical all time? Les Miserables. Good. There's just something about that story. Well, it's, it's based on a true story. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking, and yet it's uplifting at the end. And uh, just... The, the music, the words, everything about it. I, I would never, ever tire of, of seeing Les Miserables. It's a classic. Mine's frozen. Let it go. Let it go. Oh, you're young. You're young. Yeah. Yeah. I got a four-year-old, so we have to go through this. Right? <laughs> Good answer. Ding, ding. <laughs> but, you know, I was a Beauty and the Beast fan back there in 93. I've seen that multiple times. And I've seen The Lion King live on Broadway. It's another fantastic show. There's no musical I've ever hated. Just, no. Just, just, or drama, too. I've seen no. a lot of dramas in my day. So. And you know, and a quick, quick thing I'll say about, about theater. People always ask me, what is it you like about theater? And I say, because every night they go on that stage, they cannot fail. In baseball, a batter fails seven out of ten times. He's had a great night. But in theater, you've got a new audience every, ga every game, every night in mm -hmm. theater. You've got a new audience. If you go out there and you flub that show that night, those 500,000, 5,000 people are going out saying, don't go see that show. It's a dud. So they have to put their, you know, what's on the line every right. night. And there's no, it's not like a movie where they can do take 27, take 28 till they get it right. They got to get it right first shot. There's no, there's no lip syncing. There's no redos or, or anything, do-overs or whatever. But uh, that's the thing about live theater. That, uh, and it also, you know what? It's just like umpiring a baseball game. It gets you away from the real world. You're out in that field. It gets you away from the real world for two, three hours, same as you go to see live theater. 100%. We enjoy umpiring. They put their heart and soul into entertainment on a different level. Even the most diehard sports fanatic, once they're in a theater, I don't think they can say, oh, I want to go somewhere else. And no, you, have no, no. you have nowhere else to go. You have to you know watch what? it. And, I, and you know what bugs me too is uh, you don't go to the theater and leave uh, with 10 minutes to go on the show. I don't understand baseball fans who leave 
in the ninth inning. I stayed, I'm an umpire, but I stayed till the end of the game. I, yeah. I've come to yeah. a game. I want to see the game end. Right. Anyway, that's just my pet, uh, pet peeve. That's, that's what the next episode will be. Jim Craftsman's stories, <laughs> episode two and pet peeves. <laughs> Since we're talking Canada theater arts, what's your favorite Canadian band or singer? Favorite Canadian singer. Well, I've become a huge Chantelle Kraviatsik fan lately. I saw her live. Saw her live before, just before last Christmas. I'm now following her on Instagram. She's hilarious. She gives a great concert. Uh, but, but to tell you the truth, I had I had never seen Shania Twain live. She came to the Bud Gardens here in London, uh, probably I guess it was last summer. I went to see her. What a great show she gave. And I thought, why hadn't I ever gone to see her live? So that was one more off the, the bucket list. But I could go on and on about Canadian singers. But uh, that is- uh, <laughs> We're going to say Shania Twain. They're going to say, whose beds have your boots been under, right? Or whose yeah. boots have your beds been under? <laughs> oh, that's the next, that's yeah. the next show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Man, I feel like a woman. Jeez. <laughs> Well, just in case you cared, mine's Bruce Coburn. Big Bruce Coburn fan. Big, big David Francie fan. I'm a folk kind of guy, so that's me. You know, Coburn's hockey song, I've still got, uh, my hockey stick is still with the green uh, bow still on my front porch. I just can't, uh, it's something, my next door neighbor, she's got two sticks out there. We were talking a few months ago, not just a couple months ago, and it's like, how do you ever take it? How do you ever bring it in the house? You can't. You just you just leave it there again. That, as soon as you mentioned Bruce Coburn, that's the first thing I thought of. It's a tragedy that happened a few years ago. Humble Broncos, and you know we're grieving. We grieved as a nation, yeah. and we're slowly grieving so, our I way. Think we still do. We oh. still do. Well, see, you know what? You know why it hit me, and I I really cried and cried and cried because I traveled on those iron lungs with the London Knights for, uh, for nineteen seasons. I was on those buses. So I knew exactly uh, what it, what it was like, and how there was times that we would be driving home from Sault Ste. Marie in the dead of winter in a blizzard, and thinking, "Oh my God, what have, what would have ever happened if we'd gone off the big bridge, uh, Mackinac Island, and all that sort of stuff?" So when it happened, I think that's why junior hockey everywhere, every everybody who had ever ridden one of those buses just knew knew what just just tore, tore them apart. Don't didn't mean to, to kind of be a downer, but uh, no, but that. But yeah. that's part of the Canadian lure, right? That's we're not all yeah. hockey players diehards like we are. But the idea of this country is so vast, and doesn't matter if you're on a on a hockey team, a soccer team, whatever it is, we've all gotten on those Greyhound buses of some sort and traveled yeah. somewhere. Oh, yeah. yeah, you're in Central Ontario. There, are you a Leafs or a Senators fan? Bruins. That wasn't very loud. I want it to be a little bit louder than that. <laughs> Well, you're from New Brunswick, and I should have given you the buzzer when you said you were a Blue Jays fan. I thought you'd be a Red Sox fan. I can't hit that buzzer long enough. <laughs> oh, now you're trying to drown me out, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I definitely. You are a closeted Red Sox fan because you used to be a Red Sox fan. Not a chance. Not a chance. Oh. I took in my first major league game was the Blue Jays versus the Red Sox at Fenway Park, but still couldn't draw me over to the dark side. Okay. Do you know that the Red Sox can't win a World Series unless they're doing steroids or banging garbage cans or any of that fun stuff, right? Uh, true. You can give a bell. I'll give you a bell for that one. Though I will attest the 92-93 Jays, though we don't want to talk about steroids. 
There's some big boys mm-hmm. in that team. I but still, what a what a great moment that. Uh, oh yes, Canadian those history. Championships were. I have uh, and, I, and being a Tigers fan, yeah. I was even cheering for the Blue Jays in '92, '93. Oh, a three bell ringer there. I have a I have a Blue Jays VHS cassette that I play kind of on repeat over the years from the '93. It's a recap and it's oh. 58 minutes, and I think I memorize it from start to finish. There's only two yeah. movies I've ever done. It's that one and The Lord of the Rings. So, Okay, Jim, you've been a lot around the game a long time. And just to throw it out there, Jim, as you said, he's 70 years old, but the guy's on Facebook, Instagram. He was able to get a Gmail account for this thing. This guy is spry, okay, people? But I'm banned from uh, Instagram, though. Oh, no, yeah, no, from Twitter. Sorry, Twitter. I'm on Instagram, but I, <laughs> but I got banned from Twitter because I said a few things about Donald Trump. Okay. <laughs> Jim, Jim couldn't, as you can tell, this episode's running a little long. That's okay. The stories have been fantastic, but Jim can't keep it to 280 characters or less. <laughs> so you've been in the game a long time. When you started, were you an outside or an inside chest protector? And what's your preference over the years? Well, back in 1963, all they had was the outside chest protector. I eventually... I eventually went to the inside. I went to umpire school, of course. We talked about that in 72. I had the inside chest protector. I went to spring training, St. Louis Cards minor league camp. I was fighting that outside corner. I said, this isn't going to work. So I went to a sporting goods store, bought one of the Nakona outside that they used in the American League at the time, bought one of those chest protectors, used that all four years in the minor leagues. Guess that's maybe again how the American League, as I say, I told the Marty Springstead story about how they liked me because back then, depending on what chest protector you use, that's what that major league was looking at. Back, I found after a while that I want to get rid of the balloon and I went to the inside and never... I do want to do, when I decide that I'm retiring, I want to, still got my Nakona from the minor leagues to dust it off, but I, my final game that I ever umpire, I want to get permission from uh, Ed Quinlan, uh, president of Baseball Ontario, and Ray Merkley, the supervisor of umpires, if they're still around when I decide to retire. <laughs> uh, I want to use the outside protector one last uh, one last shot. So, But yeah, so inside now. Oh, there's, that's the only way to, only way to do it. Fair enough. I got to give you the bell, though, just to have that experience with the outside balloon. Now, yeah. maybe one request. In that last game, can you wear a shirt and tie? Oh, God, it's going to be hot. <laughs> I used to, when I was in the Florida State League, my partner and I, the one year, well, the one year I was there, we had red blazers, like the oh, American League guys. Oh, gross. We were the under 80 crew. If it was 79 degrees, we wore our blazers. We, oh, man, we sweat, but... Yeah. The other umpires hated us because the league president at the time, George McDonald Jr., thought it was great. He thought about bringing in a rule that any time it was under 80, the umpires have to wear a blazer. Oh, no. no. Thank goodness we didn't do that. We would have been run out of Dodge by the other umpires. Okay, Jim. If you owned a boat, what would you name it? Orca. It'd have to be Orca, too, because my nickname is Orca. Fair. I got named that when I was at the London Free Press. Uh, I used to be a little chunkier than I am right now. And, and one of the guys called me Orca one day and it just stuck. Yeah, it stuck. Yeah. I'm a journalist. Yeah. I'm taking Squatch Hunter because I'm a big Sasquatch fan or I think maybe Mrs. Robinson because you're always supposed to name your boat a woman, they say. So an ode oh, to Simon okay. and Garfunkel. A female Orca. A female Orca. Share with us, Jim, a little bit of your hometown. What's your favorite restaurant in London? What's a must-go-to? It just closed. Bertoli's, an Italian place. 
Uh, Bob DeFrusha decided it was time to get out of the business. He sold it. He'd had it for over 20 years. It was great Italian home-style cooking. It's now a Chuck's Roadhouse or something like mm. that. Now I guess if I'd have to pick my uh, pick my favorite restaurant, it would be... Uh, there's a sister. There's a, a Del Cetto. Del Cetto. Bob's brother owns an Italian restaurant near me. It's a little more upscale, though. I'm not, you know, I'm not kind of an upscale, classy, white, uh, white tablecloth type of a guy. So, you know. <laughs> not to name drop, but I've been cruising downtown Montreal back there in my day with the after a national championship with Chaba Vey, and I tell you, he brought me into an upscale restaurant. I couldn't afford. I couldn't afford the water. I could have what was Ch- that's Chaba? He surprises you, doesn't he? Oh yes. <laughs> Chaba likes his steak, and he'll bring you to a really good steakhouse. And one of those steakhouses oh, yeah. that don't even put the price of anything on the menu. It's just... Oh, oh, you just order it, and the bill comes, and it was $99 <laughs> for the steak and $20 for the baked potato. Yeah. <laughs> if you're ever in a city where they have a palm, go there. They have a $99 steak and a $20 baked potato. That's all you get. And when it comes to Chaba Bay, I think I remember him saying that day that steak at the keg is like hamburger to him. But moving on, Jim, if you could come back as an animal, what would you come back as? A cat. I'm a dog guy. It's dog. It's dog versus cat. It's there's no question. I'm allergic to dogs. I'd be sneezing all the time. Oh. See. Better work on that allergy. Okay, as umpires, we're not supposed to have favorites, okay? But for this episode, who's your favorite baseball player all time? Probably, oh man, like I've got guys who are my favorite who I never even saw play. But That's okay. I, I, I would have to say Lance Parrish, Detroit Tigers catcher. And I'm, I'm being selfish on that one because I covered the Tigers for the London Free Press. I covered their 84 World Series. Uh, Lance was one of the players who never hid in the trainer's room after a loss. It's amazing how many, because that's off limits to the media, the trainer's room. Fair enough. Makes uh, sense. It's amazing how many players will go hide in the, uh, hide in the trainer's room or take a one hour shower just to avoid facing the media. But Lance Parrish was always standing there in front of, uh, front of his locker. And I have to say too, that, uh, Lance Parrish ranked right up there with, with, uh, on Sparky Anderson's list of uh, favorite uh, ball players too, right? Pretty close to Johnny Bench, I might add. Uh, that was another thrill. I know we didn't get into that, but covering, uh, being at the London Free Press, covering the Detroit Tigers, dealing with Sparky Anderson. Wow. Yeah. That's all Legend. about Sparky. Wow. Yeah. What are the name of your cats? My first two that I had for 15 years were baseball and home run. They were females. Okay. The two that I have right now that I've had them for about, Five, they were rescues. I've had them for about five or six years now. They're a little older than that. Are screwball and shortstop. So you're catching a theme there? Or? Yeah, I'm catching the theme. As we say, this is a show about baseball. Baseball is your life. It's done you well, yeah. I guess. It really has. And you're back in your day. Did you see any of the old screwballs, spitballs, any of that fun stuff? Oh, I saw some heaters. I mentioned that uh, Ron Guidry pitched in the Eastern League when I was uh, when I was in the Eastern League. Uh, two quick Ron Guidry stories. He was on pace one night to win a free bag of groceries if he pitched a shutout. He was in the top of the ninth inning. We're in uh, West Haven, Connecticut. He was with the West Haven Yankees, of course, the Yankees Double A team. 
and uh, Gidry threw a uh, kind of a high, hard one. It was runner on third, two out. There was two strikes on the batter. Catcher missed it. The ball bounced off my balloon, hit the top shoulder of my – I still remember it hit the left shoulder of my balloon, dropped down at the catcher's feet. The runner at third base hung up or, or stopped. And uh, if the ball had gone to the backstop, he would have scored. Gidry would never have gotten the bag, the free bag. Next pitch, he threw strike three. He got his $25 gift certificate for a free <laughs> bag of groceries. The next day in the uh, New Haven, Connecticut newspaper, the writer wrote, uh, he wrote about that. And he said uh, the, the fact that the ball hit the umpire's balloon, uh, he should maybe share that, uh, that the groceries with the plate umpire, Jim Cressman. But on second thought, given the size of the plate umpire oh. Cressman, maybe he shouldn't. <laughs> oh, I ouch. Weighed, I weighed about 210 back then. Double whammy. The other, the, other quick, the other quick Ron Guidry story was he almost never made it the major leagues because of me. I thought he was ready for me to throw a foul ball back to him or throw a new ball back to him after foul ball. He was looking at me just as I threw it. He turned his head, and I just screamed. And he just, <laughs> like, I won't say the, the word that I screamed, yep. but it caught his attention. For some reason, he just put his glove up in front of his face, and the ball hit him, hit him in the glove instead of in the face. Oh, but, wow. Oh, man. Anyway. Okay, question 10, okay? You talk about the balloon chest protector, the inside chest protector. You covered the Tigers. Are you an NL or an AL fan? Well, because I'm a Detroit Tiger fan, I got to say American League. All right, I got a bell. Yes. yes. Now, your, your, <laughs> your years work in the Eastern League and that stuff, How what... What rule set did you play by? The NL or the AL? Uh, we basically, it was the, well, of course, Major League book, but we had the American League interpretations if there was any discrepancy. And there were, back then, there was a lot of, a lot of discrepancies between the two leagues, which we always see back in the day. You're too young to remember, but in the World Series and that. But yeah, most of the interpretations all came from the, uh, from the American League back then. In the minors. Well, one of those interpretation concerns were what the NL switch, the double switch, where the manager had to come out to you first. We didn't, uh, we didn't have to deal with that because back then there was no, uh, there was no designated hitter uh, back when I was in the minor leagues. The only thing we had to deal with was Rick Bassetti. You remember Rick Bassetti played for the Blue Jays, center yep. field. Yep. I remember now why one time when he was in uh, in an Eastern League ballpark, I saw him out in center field. He was facing his back was to us, and he was facing the wall. Because it came out in his book later on after he retired that his goal was, and he did it, he had a P in every major league center field. Oh, <laughs> holy Jesus. He did it in leagues too. But anyway, Rick Rossetti came to the plate one night wearing golf. He was fast. He could run. He's wearing golf spikes. He had golf shoes, or no, not golf spikes. He had track spikes on. And not, and you know, those spikes yep. are like, oh, They're... these are sharp. Yep. So I went to I said, no, you can't, you cannot wear those. Well, Bob Wellman was the manager of the Reading Phillies. He said, there's nothing in the book. I said, no, 902, yep. whatever. I can't, they've changed the numbers now. Yep. But I said, no. I said, if he slides in at second base, he's going to slit that guy's throat open. He's not yep. using those. And I forgot about that. That's one of three rules that, because of me, and I'm not bragging, but that went to Major League Baseball, and they came out with a rule themselves, no Spikes like that. The right. Only real clean. You cannot use that type of a type of a spike. So three rules. You say that's the first one. What are the other two? When I was in the Eastern League, we had the collision between the catcher and the batter at home plate, and the rule came in if it's an incidental, if they're both doing the job. Uh, right. Because the league president went to the major leagues, went to the American League, National League, 
they had no interpretation of that at all. So they finally put it in the book that if they're both doing what they're supposed to be doing, it's just ruled incidental right. contact. Uh, the other one was in the World University Games in Buffalo. American batter, there was bases were loaded. He lined the ball on or one one hopper back to the Italian pitcher. Italian pitcher's turning around out there on the mound and he's looking for the ball. I can't find the ball. I don't see the ball anywhere out there. All the runners advanced one base. They've all stopped now. And I finally go, okay, time. And then now the pitcher's kind of feeling around on his uniform and I go out there and the ball had gone into his uniform. So he pulls the ball out of his uh, uniform. So we left the runners where they were. Right. Tim Leeper, believe it or not, Tim Leeper, yep. who Blue Jays. I covered Eastern League because he played for the London Tiger. Then he was coaching with the Team USA in the, uh, in the, in the university games. He said, what happens if I kept telling the runners keep running? I said, well, I guess we just want to let them keep running, but everybody stops. We call time. So anyway, uh, they got on the phone. This umpire supervisor got on the phone to the, to the American League office. There was no rule to cover that. So sure enough, Major League Baseball came out with the rule that if it goes in the uh, uniform, you end up putting the runners where you think they would have been, depending on right. whatever it is that it goes in the uniform. And so another rule was uh, was uh, was written. I just wish they would have a little note in the rule book. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. Submitted by, that. seconded by. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like the That's annual right. AGM. Yeah, it's kind of cool. To, uh, I know. I know. There's been hockey coaches. There's been hockey referees. That because well, uh, uh, Roger Nielsen, when he coached Peterborough Peets, always used to when uh, the other team would pull the goalie, he would uh, no when the, he would pull his goalie. Sorry, he would have the goalie lay the goalie stick on the uh, the goal line. Right. So if they tried to score at the other end, they would hit the stick and not win. Uh, they never had the rule about defenseman tackling a guy on an empty net who's breaking in an empty net. Yep. Or he would just send extra guys over the boards. Now, of course, it, that's out, out a goal. Shot. Nielsen uh, rule. Well, if there's no goalie on the ice, it's an auto right, goal. We're talking about hockey. Here. Yeah, I know. We can we can talk hockey rules, but if there's no goalie on the ice, it's a goal. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. But Jim, that is a quite a piece of history there with the baseball in regards to the rule changes. And I got to say, it's quite amazing how it's the ball inside the uniform rule was never changed until '93. It seems very yeah. recent for that yeah. rule to be changed. Yeah, they put one in, and then they then they uh, they reevaluated it, as you say. And uh, no, not no, they didn't put it in. Sorry, ninety three was the first time there was a rule. It wasn't right. even that they rewrote it. There hadn't been a rule for it, so they had to come up with a come up with a rule. So yeah, right. Yeah, it's really it's it's really interesting that that's it. It just seems so recent. Considering how yeah, old the yeah. game is, and a ball never yeah. went into a uniform that felt that it was worth writing a rule until '93, or maybe it had, and they just the player yeah. had to dig it out or something. Yeah, exactly. This is a game the player didn't know nobody. I didn't know where it was. I it was like, where did it go? But uh, nothing to do with my eyesight. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. <laughs> you brought. You brought. Good thing you brought your dog that game. I got to say, the guys up in the press box uh, at Buffalo for the World University Games when they found out that uh, myself and Glenn Johnson were from Canada. Guess uh, guess what music they played every game. The Log Driver back, Waltz. Back back then, they were they were really big. They were a really big group back then. Tragically hip. Bare Naked Ladies. Oh, Brian Wilson, yes. yes downtown. Hey. That's actually one of my favorite Canadians too, eh? And back then, they were good. They had Stephen Page as their lead front man. They were good. Yeah, yeah. You know what I got to say too? Yeah, there. See, if you ask for a group, yeah. So much Canadiana, we could go all day. But moving on to the 
final part of our show. It's typically reserved. We call it local legends, okay? This is a part where we get you to shout out to just the local people in, around your organization that are really giving back to the game of baseball. It doesn't have to be at the big league level. Just makes baseball baseball. Well, I got to say someone like Mike Lumley in London, uh, Mike runs the London Badgers program. He got as high as AAA with the, with the Tigers. He pitched with the Mud Hands uh, in Toledo, never got a shot at the big leagues. He was actually in the Eastern League with the London Tigers when I was covering the team. Mike has done a great job for uh, minor baseball. Derek Brooks uh, over in St. Thomas, just south of London. He's the uh, president of uh, London District Baseball Association. Derek really backs the umpires, which which is uh, I'm sure you've experienced before, where league or association presidents don't really get behind the umpires, but he's really good for umpires. Whenever he holds a national over there, the umpires come first. He really treats them uh, very just great, first class. Um, somebody who's a two local umpires, I got to mention. Uh, well, Don Gilbert, I got to give a shout out, even though he lives two hours, two hours away. But uh, Rob Companion, supervisor of umpires with the London District Baseball Association and a, a level level five umpire. And Justin Snively, too, who's a level five umpire. Justin is now on the Baseball Ontario uh, Board, on the executive uh, board of management. That's what they're called. He's a, he's a big shot. We call him commissioner now. He's the commissioner of rec <laughs> So he's now called Commissioner Gordon, but really, really fights for uh, for umpires. Not that and Eddie Quinlan, of course, is president, and of course, everyone in Baseball Canada knows Eddie. Yep. That's yep. an umpire. Uh, so we're pretty good at Baseball Ontario uh, level with uh, with Eddie and Justin and uh, and uh, Ray Merkley is the supervisor too. So yeah, I've kind of gone outside of uh, outside of London a little bit. Umpires are great people, aren't we? Oh, yes. It all comes together with a lot of hands. It's not put together by one individual. These programs are built little pyramids here, little pyramids there, and then we get the great pyramid at the end, right? So you're saying it's a pyramid scheme? Uh, no, 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 not that much. No. Okay. <laughs> the, Mounties, the Mounties will be knocking on your door. Yeah, yeah exactly. we could say that. Though I got a real good deal on Tupperware if you want. Okay, we'll go empty the back. <laughs> Open the trunk of the car. I got a few fake Rolexes and some Tupperware. What's wow? Hey, if Corey, if Corey can get a Joe West open his trunk and yeah. give Corey a new West vest. Yes. 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 I want some Tupperware. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that is a great deal. Eh? That's oh, a fantastic God. story. And, you know, your experience and Corey's experience on the international scene, it's amazing where they get to, right? But I think this year with the COVID situation, I heard Stu Shearwater is selling that Tupperware out of the back of his car there. So. Oh, the money Stu's making now, I don't think he has to. I don't think he has to either. And that's just a joke, people. That is just a joke. Stu is not selling Tupperware, so don't try to contact him. But in Stu's defense this year, he donated a full set of Wilson equipment, right from shin guards, chest protector, mask, some shoes, to the Saskatchewan Umpire Association, as well as the Alberta Umpire Association, so that they could do a raffle draw and donate the proceeds to their respective mentorship programs. So... I think that we do owe Stu a great thank you for that and for participating and being a valued member and continuing to give back to the baseball Canada and local baseball programs here in the Western Canadian provinces. It's it's great though, eh? Like one of our one of our own. Like my God, and there's a few other that might we might see there someday uh, as well. But uh, I think we're doing yeah. fantastic at the Canadian uh, the Canadian level and getting them into minor professional baseball. And most of those guys that go there have some kind of Baseball Canada experience. And, and not just 
the grassroots. They all started doing the 13 U games or the house league, the right. mosquito rookie ball. Right. They all, they all started there. And it's uh, yeah. Yeah. Just again, they tell these young umpires, it's a testament to what you can do. If you really set your, uh, set your mind to it. hundred percent. And I think we got to send a shout out to some of them that I can think of right off hand. We have Craig Burton, BC. He's been to a 13 U we have Alex Laurie out of Nova Scotia, who I believe you supervised back uh, in, in Summerside, the 15U. Uh, we, yep. we have lots of guys. I, I, I mean, I go, you know, former guy, Scott Costello made it close. Yeah. And I, you I know go. What? If, oh, I feel bad for Scott. If COVID happened last year, he'd be in the major leagues today. Quite plausible. That's how it is, right? Yeah. It's just a. Yeah. Luck of the draw, and I really hope that you bring that up. I really hope the guys there this year getting a lot of chances. I really hope this isn't a 99 strike for them where it's that one and done. I really hope that they Major League Baseball sees that this is the future and realizes how old and experienced, I don't don't, don't want to be cruel, but how experienced their crews are and maybe a little more diversity will be a good thing to ensure continuity as as they go forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think some of the older guys too have got to say, you know what? Like they got the pension, they got everything. Just you know, give give some of the younger guys a chance. Like I can understand, like somebody like Joe West wants to get that record, but mm. in yeah. the end, what what does it mean? What I guess to him it means a lot. But I'm not criticizing him by any means. But you just wonder. Some of the guys just keep hanging on. Like give those younger guys that that shot that that deserve it. That's fair. Anyway. I mean, if Joe West wants to give up the record chase and come on leading edge umpire stories, I'll be sure to have him. I'm not going to, he doesn't need a record to get invited if that makes sense. Perfect. Like, well, Suchok doesn't have any records, does he? I throw, I'm throwing the gauntlet. I'm throwing down that gauntlet. Ron Suchok, you get on this show or I'm coming to haunt you and I'm going to dull every one of your head razor blades. <laughs> oh, Mach 3 from Gillette. <laughs> It'll be a Mach Fifty by the time I get done with it. <laughs> uh, well, Jim, it's been a pleasure and an honor to be able to sit here and talk with you and entertain some of your stories and listen to them. Your long storied career here in Canada is one that deserves recognition, and I want to say congratulations for being named the International Baseball Federation of the Umpire of the Year in '99. It's it's really amazing. You know, 30 years later, we're still talking about this, but you are a Canadian legend, and I want to thank you for sharing those stories with us today. I've had a lot of fun, and essentially what I want to do is give you the last moment to say any words of wisdom and really take us off in the sunset. Well, I just, I want to say too, before I do that, that it's an honor being on your show too, Philip, and what you're doing, it's great, because so many times umpires don't get a chance to to tell their stories and and what I'm hearing with the guys who have been on, like some of the story, some of some of those stories we don't we would not even hear if we've been working with them because they don't think to to bring them up or something like that. So I, I think what you're doing is just a, is a great service to umpires, and I hope more people uh, start start listening because it definitely is uh, it's an educational uh, uh, tool as as well as an entertainment tool. Thank you. Uh, I guess I guess the last thing that uh, I'll just say is what I say at the end of uh, every umpire clinic that I do. And I see some puzzled look on their faces, but I just tell them, you know what, go home and think about what I just said. But what I usually say at the end of every clinic is uh, 
May all your balls be strikes. Well, that concludes this episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Join us on our next episode where we speak with 2001 Dick Willis Award winner, 2008 Olympian, and a man that's going to rise to the challenge from Jim Cressman, Ron Suchuk. Now, before you go, we would like to leave you with this. There's a common misconception that the batter runner may not overrun first base if they get on with a base on balls. But the real question should be, what happens if they overrun home? Take care, everybody, and stay safe.